Hi, I'm Devin Foyle, and you're listening to River Runs Backwards. In a region where the biggest threat to urban life is often water, the mission of the Greater New Orleans Water Collaborative is to ensure that the communities of Southeast Louisiana can live and thrive with water. The Water Collaborative takes an integrative approach to its mission, meaning it not only focuses on the physical aspects of urban water management, but also the social, economic, and ecological aspects too. Enter the Edible Planner Box. It's a tool that has the potential to address all of these aspects of urban life in an approachable and inexpensive manner. In 2020, the New Orleans Water Collaborative charged engineers, architects, and those who love to design to create a planner box that addresses the dual issues of urban flooding and food insecurity within the city of New Orleans. The following interview is with Estefania Barajas, the first place winner of the Edible Planter Box competition. Estefania called her design Planter Ludo. The goal and ambition of Planter Ludo is to make a planter that can create more interesting and fun spaces, a planter that can grab a child's attention while simultaneously informing and explaining its own operational components, an intersection of education and play. Now, to the tape! So my name is Estefania Barajas, which is really hard to pronounce, so I usually go by Steph. And I grew up in Mexico, born and raised, and I came to Laredo, Texas when I was, I want to say 11. And both my parents were architects. They came here, they weren't. So we kind of grew up with like very limited resources. So I grew up in a food apartheid, which is why I understood a lot of the issues I had to do with the competition, why I wanted to uh, even enter the competition. I think it's wonderful everything that they were doing. And so I'm currently, I did my undergrad graduate studies at UTSA uh, in architecture, and I'm doing my master's in architecture at Rice University. And I am currently in my pre-thesis or thesis semester, and I will be doing them on food apartheid and food deserts. Cool. You mentioned food apartheid in your, in your video that you submitted for the competition. I had never actually heard that term before. I had heard food deserts. So I was just kind of wondering what is the difference between a food desert and what is food apartheid? Does one include the other? Yeah, this is, in, this is also very new to me. I- it was actually introduced by um, Karen Washington, who uh, she's an activist and she's a farmer. She describes using the, the term food desert as an outsider's term. So when she describes the food desert, she describes it as like, you know, you think of a desolate place, a place that has um, not enough space for or potential. And also and when we think of desert, it's something that happens by nature, right? And that's not the case at all. Food deserts are not something that happened by nature. They're extremely systematic. And so when we're using the term food apartheid, the word apartheid in, talks about, you know, this is part of systemic racism. This is part of inequalities. This is really kind of getting more into the bigger picture. 
recently I had to explain this at school doing my thesis and trying to explain, look, well, why does this happen? Why can't we just add grocery stores? And I used to think the same thing. And it's, I think it's a lot more complex than that. And so the way I diagram the problem, I think, for lack of a better word, I diagramming, I feel like it's very architectural. But when I was explaining it is, imagine having a single parent and she's working two jobs and she goes and uh, she starts her day at 7 a.m. And she gets out, say, at 10 p.m. You get home, you're exhausted. Um, by the time you get home, you're not going to go grocery shopping. And by the time you're home, there's nothing that's open. And even if something's open, say Walmart, you're going to go, you're possibly not going to buy produce, right? You're going to probably going to get something that's already made. You just want to get home. You want to feed your children. You want to feed yourself. And now imagine having a community with a lot of people share the same. This is, this is kind of like the, the oversimplified understanding of how you get like a food apartheid, a food desert. So I'm an urban planner. That's what I do for a job. That's what I'm passionate about. And that sounds like a very like urban plannery kind of issue. How did you, how are you so attracted to that um, being a, being, you know, an architect? Yeah. Well, so where I'm at, there's not enough, there's not enough green spaces. So when I went to UTSA and we had the, the opportunity to help a community garden it's like, oh my God, green space. And I get to build it myself. It's amazing. So I, I just kind of became very obsessed with community gardens and everything they had to offer when it comes to pollinators. And I realized that a lot of community gardens don't, I mean, the things that you do are very kind of like do it yourself, right? There's no attention to the structure. It's always like an afterthought. It's something that people usually Google. They go get the stuff at Lowe's and they put together. And I think they can be just spaces um, that are a lot more beautiful, a lot more interesting. They can collect water. They can have solar panels. They're just, they can be everywhere. We usually see community gardens in affluent communities. So I also think that's a problem. I No, I totally get it. You mentioned pollinators just like very briefly there. What what did you mean by that? I remember I was working my internship at Lake Plato right after my undergraduate studies. And when I was working at Lake Plato, they invited us to, to go to a conference that had to do with everything that had to do with just green infrastructure. And it focused solely on pollinators and how, how much we're losing our, our bees. And it's just kind of the unsustainable practices that we're using in um, agriculture. It's kind of putting us at very alarming stages of basically San Antonio had to put together a plan because we we're on the on the line for the like monarch butterflies. It was kind of like if you don't act now, we will be in um, huge issues. Basically, if we don't have pollinators, we don't have food. And I never thought about it that way. So wait, San Antonio has like a whole plan for pollinators then? Is that what you, Wow. Okay. Yeah. And that, I mean, does that, is that because there's like a whole like uh, community garden movement in San Antonio? Like, I have, it's called the Green Space Alliances. I think it's one of the cities with the most community gardens. And they also have Texas Butterfly Community Ranch. And they focus on trying to foster environments or ecosystems for butterflies, pollinators, so bees. And what they try to put together are different workshops. And they try to teach people on how to just add them. Sometimes they give the plants for free and they're just like, go add them to your garden. In other words... Wow. We're just in desperate need to provide habitat for them. Because if not, they just, they don't make them. Yeah. 
What do you think it takes for a community to develop a plan like that for pollinators? Because, you know, in New Orleans, I don't think that's even on our radar at all. Like you said, San Antonio is right on the line for monarch butterflies, so we might not be the same that way, but I feel like we could pitch in if we had some kind of plan. Like, what do you think it takes to to have a, to actually develop a plan like that? Like citizen involvement, or do you think citizens are more knowledgeable about that because they see more butterflies, or what what do you think it is? That's That's a good question. I think... We had a huge advocate. Her name is Monica. I know it, it started as a small foundation that she put together and she kind of made it a mission to teach people through different community um, meetings. Uh, I think she was meeting with different community gardens and trying to explain to them how significant and how much of a change they can make by just adding um, the different uh, flowers and different spaces for, for butterflies and bees. And then it became into a thing that San Antonio added to you know they have now like festivals for this they have like a butterfly day and they bring together different firms architecture firms different design competition they bring um, different schools it becomes an entire festival and so i think it takes that one advocate that's kind of putting together all those different nonprofits. so your design focuses on accessibility for educational purposes and based on your ideas and experience, how do you think New Orleans could teach its youth about sustainable living and stormwater management? So I think going back to food apartheid, when we were talking about the problem, and some of them are also habitual, like they're kind of part of how we eat. I think what I was researching, it's just eating is such a big part of our habits and our daily decisions. The education part is is trying to teach people about how how do we how do we change our diet? And there was a previous question that you had asked that had to do with culture. Yeah, actually, there was a book that I recently found by this professor who's also a food scholar. His name is Massimo Montari. And he is he talks about food is culture. And he describes it as everything having to do with food, the gathering, the cultivation, the preparation, the way we consume it on itself is a culture act, right? If you think of when we consume fast food, we are unable to partake in that art. And so it's no longer part of a ritual. There's no more sense of care. And at least not, there's a huge difference if we're, you know, eating from McDonald's or we're eating from a local restaurant. And so I think in disinvested communities, like the one I grew up in, we often find, you know, an abundance of package or overly processed junk food. And we don't have enough fresh produce, just not enough healthy uh, meals. And to be clear, uh, I don't think there's any lack of culture in New Orleans. I think it's one of the most fascinating cities I've ever visited. I think from the music, for the architecture, from the people, it's quite distinctive. I, it, it's just beautiful. But what I've noticed, you know, I lived in Baton Rouge maybe for about six months and I got to visit New Orleans a few times. But the times that I went, they were lovely and I got to eat a lot. And what I've noticed is the cuisine, very similar to the problems that we have in Mexican food, is that it's pretty heavy. It's very heavy meat. It also has a lot of carbs a lot of fats, and maybe, like us, maybe not a lot of fruits and vegetables. I think part of that, I mean, this is kind of why Louisiana and Texas have a higher rates of obesity and diabetes. This mm. is part of our diets, and this is also a lot of problems that food deserts and food apartheid are kind of battling. And again, this is, this is part of our culture, right? And I think culture is beautiful, and we should embrace it, but we should think of, like, how we want to continue living our lives. 
now going to your question about how does education and how is that important and mm -hmm. how do we want to bring that into New Orleans and how is the planter doing it? I think it's amazing. I think that the Water Collaborate, the, just the way they put the competition, the fact that you can address food apartheid, food deserts, and also dive into stormwater. It's great. I think we lost some connection to food, especially if you're not having any fresh food, you're not, you're actually not even cooking. So many kids don't even know where, you know, different roots, different potatoes come from. There's actually a survey that not enough people knew where milk came from. Yeah, Americans, not, not just, I don't think, Texans or anyone in Louisiana. I think there's definitely a disconnect of where our food comes from, how it's produced, and our eating habits, how much time we spend eating. Those things, I think, can be changed by having a different education system. So imagine having planters and seeing them every day, at least seeing like, oh, that's what tomatoes look like. That's how long they take to, you know, to grow. We would also have a very different attitude with waste. I think we would understand that, you know, that took months to produce and maybe we shouldn't throw it away. It just has a little bit of black. My mom, the reason why we're in the U.S., as a matter of fact, is because my mom was a migrant worker in Watsonville in California. And so she was in the field from a young age and she got to see, you know, the entire life cycle of food. And so every time we wouldn't eat our food, Everyone hears that story of like, oh, there's other children that don't have anything to eat. But our story at home was like, that took three months to produce and someone had to pick it up. And then that made it to your table and you disgraceful person, you have to eat it because <laughs> it's, a, it's right. a living thing. And you can't let it go to waste or there's, there's another way. You can't, we should replant it or get the seeds from it. I right. think... Yeah, I think it, it, it was definitely my mom who, who constantly spoke about waste. Also, just not growing up, you know, with the most money. I think it makes you really think of what you have and make the little, make the, all the little things count. So when we're talking about youth and we're thinking of the planters, I think it would be amazing if we could have a generation of children coming out and understanding how to compose. If they could understand how we can have less waste and absolutely how to grow their own fruits and vegetables. If we think of this as an investment, right, to ourselves, it's then those kids will grow and teach their own kids those habits. And this is how we would, be, we would actually begin change. When I was researching and I was actually diving into food apartheid, how they happen, food deserts, number one solution, everyone spoke about this, was education and reaching children. It's not so much that adults are not, it's like not that we can't get them, they just don't have the time. If you're already part of the system, you probably don't have a class to attend to know how can I eat healthier or how can I do this at home. But if you possibly within these families, if you're teaching this to the kids, the kids can go home and then teach their parents. Yeah. Would you think like education within the like school system, elementary school, do you think like supplementary education? That's, that's a great question. It should just kind of be part of our basic education system and it's it's not it's not yet there do you think that you could describe to us how your planter how the planter ludo actually works so the premise of the competition was to design a very simple cost-effective planter that could also store water and i decided to make mine to be self-watering because of the store storing or the store water management part of it and 
It works through a WIC system, and I'm sure everyone's done this at one point when you were in college or you needed to leave or go out of town, but you have your plans and you basically attach a cord at the bottom of the pod and you leave the opposite end of the cord in water and the wick will just absorb as much water the, the plant will need. And so my design is using plastic pots instead of the cord, but it's the same system. time I spent volunteering in community gardens, I noticed that a lot of the planters were tall and, and they were tall because they, they were trying for people not to hurt their backs by going down. And but, I, but what I noticed as well is that having children in the community gardens, they weren't accessible for everyone. And so planter Ludo, which Ludo actually, it's Latin for the word play includes a smaller option that can be accessed by children or anyone who's in a wheelchair and the taller planters. And I still wanted to include the taller planters because they were so convenient. I mean, I use them. I was like, this is pretty comfortable. And so I still included the taller planters to avoid people leaning over. The size was based on whether people needed to carry them or needed to stack them. And I started thinking of spaces in cities that are usually underutilized, underutilized, I'm sorry. Like if we think of parking lots and roofs, so if you're going to go into a roof, you need to be able to walk through a door or you need to be able to go in through an ele- elevator. The planter's shape is a trapezoid and quite honestly, the most efficient way possibly could have been a rectangle, but I wanted it to be playful and for it to create a different space. I think that we have, like I was explaining, I feel like so many things in, in community gardens are overly efficient and maybe not as interesting. And the trapezoid allows you to be very flexible, but also be very playful. and if you need it to be very accessible, the trapezoids kind of create this hexagon space. So if you're in a wheelchair, it'd actually be a lot easier for you to maneuver all around it. And the planter is made to look nice if you only had two or three. Or if you have 12 of them, you can make a really fun and creative arrangement. Yeah, it was just meant to be playful. I like that it's not just focused on efficiency, that you like purposely went away from that. That sounds really cool. Yeah. I really wanted it to be efficient when it came to the material use as well. So I used the template. The trapezoid fits as nicely as possible on a 4 by 8 aluminum sheet. I was just trying my best not to have as, weight, as little waste as possible. And I think there's possibly like 10% less than that waste on the edges. But if you see the, if you see the layout of the design, if you had to laser cut the through the aluminum plate, it would, it would be a very minimal waste. Because, because those sheets usually come in like a standard size, so you were trying to fit it to that? So I use that standard size, yeah, because you don't want to waste. <laughs> uh, even in school, when you can't afford all the fancy materials and you're like, okay, like, I need to really make, really need to think of how this model is all going to fit in this one sheet of plexiglass because each plexiglass is $30 and I can't mess it up. <laughs> So you become really quickly, you become very efficient. That's some stuff that like we didn't really truly get through your, the small video that you had to make for the competition, you know, that's like really cool. Like, how do you, I would never have known that as, cause you know, I'm not an architect student. (laughs) Going back to the water management part of the, the project and even with the competition, I feel was also very heavy on. I just, I think it's, a beautiful encouragement to think more of green infrastructure. I currently at Rice in, in Houston. It's so car-centric, and there's way more concrete and asphalt than grass could ever be there. And this is this is really why we get flooding. 
And so if you started changing a lot of that impermeable surfaces with planters or any anything else that could just grab onto that water, we would avoid bigger issues. I know it's like such a small solution to such a big problem, but I, you know, what if this was in every, like what happened if so, everyone in New Orleans started collecting their own water every time it rained? It would make a huge difference. Yeah, I, just all the cities, a lot of the issues have to do with flooding. And that's, it's just such a normal conversation now. Uh, as an architecture student, every conversation is not being like, well, is it elevated? Is it in a flood zone? What are we going to do with, the, what kind of zoning is it? Is it going to have flooding insurance? How expensive can this be? I've heard multiple stories of people have been paid by FEMA to just, please, you can't stay here in New Orleans. And they're just like, no, this is home. This is my community. This is my culture. This is, this is my food. This is my music. There's no way I'm leaving the city. And it's just becoming part of the everyday conversation, the focus. I think we're just going to have to learn how to live with water. Thank you for tuning in to River Runs Backwards. This was the third and final episode of our special series on the Edible Planter Box competition hosted by the Water Collaborative of Greater New Orleans. Our guest was the first place winner of the competition, Estefania Barajas, designer of Planter Ludo. Thank you to the Water Collaborative for collaborating with us on the special series. If you like this series, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching River Runs Backwards. And be sure to follow us on Instagram by searching our handle at River Runs Backwards Pod. That's all for now. We'll talk at you next time. This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.